This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Richard Sorge. Foils. Charles Richet. And the surrealist Mouvement. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The retinal scans you had to undergo on the way in and the big war room map projected up onto the wall tell us that we've once more entered the top-secret confines of the Tradecraft Hut. And this week we're going to kick off the podcast by going back into espionage history, to the history of World War II, to look at the career of possibly one of the most impressive spies of that era, although like most people out in the field who have big revelations to bring back to their bosses, sometimes it turns out their bosses don't want to hear it. So Ken, tell us about Richard Sorge, or is it Sorge? How's that pronounced? I assume it's Sorge. I've always pronounced it Sorge, but it might be Sorge, I suppose. I, I would have I wouldn't think that you'd have the up tilt on the end of the of the name, although I am not the expert in Azerbaijani names, so who can say? Um first name Richard anyway, I think we can Nail that one down, and I'll call him Sorge, and then no doubt someone will write in uh, from Azerbaijan. Well, that would have been Ricard if he's German, right? Right. Um, yeah. So he's basically, he was a communist, pretty much a lifelong communist. He was a German family that were in Azerbaijan drilling oil, and then they moved back to Berlin, where he became a communist by 
the approved method of reading a bunch of communist books and having rich parents. And so he went through World War One. After World War One, decided that pretty much everything that was wrong with uh, Germany could be blamed on the right wing, which is not at all a inaccurate belief in 1919. And then he uh, got bounced out of Germany in the post-war reaction and fled to the Soviet Union, where if we had been, if, if Richard had been doing this stuff in the modern era, his career would have ended because he never would have passed a background check after that. But he got recruited by the GRU, which was the Soviet military intelligence, and they sent him back into a bunch of different countries to sort of see what the chances were of a communist revolution. And he would come back and say, not much. Uh, he'd have sort of a thin journalistic cover, uh, which miraculously stayed up, despite going back to Moscow all the time in between assignments. And eventually, he got sent to Japan, again, via Germany, so that he could re reactivate his Nazi contacts, which he'd been making off and on as he went through these uh, various spy missions. And again, because the Gestapo doesn't bother reading its own files, I suppose, he's welcomed in the German diplomatic and uh, journalistic circles as an ardent Nazi. And I suppose a lot of this could be that those circles, a lot of those were older school Germans, or they were uh, military as opposed to party. And so therefore, the guy shows up saying he's a Nazi. These are the kinds of people who are not going to think, why would someone pretend to be a Nazi? That's sort of low class and icky. Well, and, and if you're an ideologue of one stripe, you're probably pretty good at presenting yourself as an ideologue of another stripe. No, I, I'm sure he made a very convincing Nazi. It's just that you'd think that the fact that he keeps going to Moscow would be on a on a document somewhere if the if the Gestapo were doing their job. Well, they didn't have the magical machines. We could just type in somebody's name and find right. out what was up with him. But the card file uh, was invented by the Soviet, by the Russian secret police in the 1880s. So Still, oh, it's untrustworthy as a communist plot. No, <laughs> it was free communist. It was Rakovsky that did it. Anyway, Rakovsky being a whole different uh, hut of his own, full the, of the Rakovsky hut. The Rakovsky hut. It's an awesome hut. Anyway, Sorge winds up in China doing you know liaison work with the uh, Chinese Communist Party, and he winds up making contacts in Japanese newspapers, which gets the GRU to think, well, we'll send him to Japan and see what's up with that, because Japan, of course is uh, part of the anti-commentarian pact by then. They're right. moving... They're busily invading China, so there'd yes. be lots of opportunities for him to make connections there and then in Japan. Right, being troublesome children all the way around. And he uh, shows up as an ardent Nazi, so he's welcomed into the German embassy at all times because they like to... You know, it's the whole... You're foreigners together in a foreign country, and so you, you feel like you've got a connection. He was able to talk the talk. He was obviously a plausible enough Nazi... And then he would pick up gossip in the German embassy and code it on a one-time pad and broadcast it through a blueprint machinery company to the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union would then ignore his intelligence, such as, you are going to be invaded by the Nazis somewhere around June 20th, 1941. And apparently, uh, Stalin was mad that in order to keep his cover going, Sorge and his ring were running a series of very successful small businesses in Japan. <laughs> they, they had, like, um, GRU money to, to set them up, but the blueprint business was actually uh, making good money and, and doing uh, good work there in Japan. And so Stalin distrusted Sorge and distrusted his intel, and then, of course, it turned because, out... Because he was too entrepreneurial? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and, and so Sorge gets 
gets bounced for that. Or it may have just been a, you know, distrusting a German type thing as well. But the quote is that he's um, uh, set up factories in Japan. Why should I believe him? And so, therefore, Stalin gets caught flat-footed right. by Barbarossa. But Sorge keeps on keeping on and begins to look into whether or not Japan is going to join the attack and, and attack the Soviet Union from the east. And he figures out, based on all of his contacts in the embassy and all of his contacts in the Japanese uh, military, that until Moscow falls, Japan is not going to get involved because the, the fall of Moscow is going to be sort of their, their, their trigger because they don't want to get involved and get beaten again like they did in 1939 when they tried uh, conclusions with Zhukov back in Mongolia. And uh, again, or get uh, hung out to dry like they did in 1919. And that is apparently something that Stalin does believe. And so they wind up, uh, they, the Soviets, wind up transferring huge numbers of troops. I think it's like five divisions or, or even more from the Soviet Far East to the lines around Moscow. And those units show up literally at the last possible minute to stop the last possible German drive on Moscow. And if... All of this is as reported, which it probably is, then Sorge is possibly the only spy who's ever actually accomplished anything, as opposed to negating a previous advantage or providing a, a brief and temporary uh, lift to a otherwise doomed uh, side. But in this particular case, those Soviet Far Eastern armies did pretty much save Moscow, and one can make an argument, although not every military historian does, that the fall of Moscow would have knocked the Soviets out of the war with obvious grotesque results had the, had the Germans been able to stabilize the Eastern Front even for two or three years, much less for the rest of the century. Right. And in order to have the consequential information that actually did get through and have a consequence and caused a redistribution of military resources, he had to have the goods previously and have it be proven that he was right, even though he'd been disbelieved, in order to be believed the second time. Right. So that even this is sort of a, a classic example of the information bottleneck that leads to, you know, the actual impact of espionage is always uh, much lower than we want to think in our world of thrillers, where we want to have active spies doing things that really matter, because the top brass never wants to hear it. And in this case, you know, if the top brass is one guy, mm -hmm. uh, he can have these weird idiosyncratic reasons for dismissing you. So this is, uh, you know, even so, this is still, you know, very much in the world of something that inspires the Le Carre style of espionage rather than the Ian Fleming side. Yeah. And, of course, the other thing is because the Soviets... They, they generally tended to have fairly weird ideas about message discipline. And I guess it's of a piece with the whole put 10 million men into the front line and when they're all dead, we'll have figured out how to stop the Nazis type approach to the war. But their spy networks were all basically told to send as much traffic back to Moscow as they possibly could. And what that meant was that when the Germans would be looking for, or in this case, the Japanese would be looking for anomalous radio transmissions and trace them down, or they would be able to break the codes in some cases if they weren't using one-time pads as with as much discipline as Sorge was, then they'd be able to roll up the Soviet network. But the Soviets, I suppose rightly in the, uh, in the final analysis, believed you could always get another network, what you can't get is information today. And indeed, that's what happened to Sorge. He sends, he keeps sending more and more 
messages as the as the war begins to ramp up even further, and the Japanese secret police track him down based on those on on that number of messages. Uh, they break the uh, the blueprint lady, who's sort of the message handler. She turns over Sorge, and Sorge gets arrested in October of 1941. So his useful career as a spy is only about three months because he's disbelieved in June, then he's believed in September, and then he's arrested in October. So there's not a lot. So when someone like Kim Philby says that his work was impeccable, it's like, well, yeah, but other spies continue to operate for years and years and years and don't get hung by the Japanese. And that is, of course, what happened to Sorge. The Japanese tried to do a spy trade with the Soviets, who they were not technically at war with, and the Soviets were like, uh, we've never heard of this guy. You must, you just arrested a German. Yes. Uh, Soviet <laughs> assets are expendable. <laughs> and some people speculate that's because Stalin doesn't want Sorge coming back to the GRU and saying, ha, funny how you didn't believe me about Barbarossa, isn't it? That was hilarious. And, uh, Stalin figures, well, we'll just, you know, save, uh, save a bullet and let the Japanese do my own job for me. Yes. You never want to uh, remind a murderous dictator of his errors. <laughs> yes. Of his, of his big, biggest screw up. And so Sorge was indeed hung, as does happen uh, to spies both good and evil. And um, he wound up being sort of buried as a non-person for a while, but he was uh, rehabilitated. His reputation was rehabilitated in the post-Stalin era when the Soviets wanted to have sort of a, a notion of a, of, a, of a hero who could go out into the bourgeois world and beat them at their own game. And so Sorge got the hero of the Soviet Union medal, I think, in, uh, under either under Khrushchev or right after Khrushchev. And so they, he was sort of a, a, like a, like a children's hero in the Soviet Union, which is the only reason to be skeptical of the Sorge record, because anyone the Soviets were that fond of under Brezhnev, it might be a lie, uh, all the way through. But I think that, you know, no one has yet found any documents saying the other. And at some point, he did send a message <laughs> saying that, uh, uh, the Japanese were only going to attack after Moscow fell, and Stalin did remove those troops from the Soviet Far East. And so therefore, I think you pretty much have to put on Richard Sorge and uh, George Zukov uh, the the twin uh, mantle of guys who saved the Soviet Union. So if you're playing a, uh, not necessarily Sorge directly, but a Sorge-inspired campaign where you are the members of this spy network in, uh, uh, let's even make it historical Japan during the war, what operations was he conducting that would lead to the sort of obstacles that you might string together to make a compelling scenario? I, I think to make the, I mean, it, it, for a compelling scenario, I think it's more interesting not to put him in Japan where he really, his obstacle is going to be, I mean, there's a guy who's an Abwehr counterintelligence guy at the German embassy who's, you know, trying to find out if there's a leak. And then there's the Kempitai, the Japanese secret police, but those are relatively standard um, and the action is of the sort that's very difficult for a, for a game to model because it's not a series of short, sharp shocks necessarily. It's more a steady grinding away at your, at your defenses. But I think his actions in China are more, more spy-y because he's going around the country and he's meeting communists and there's all manner of Japanese troops and, and fascists and all kinds of people going on in China. And also in the thirties, he has the risk of there being a big purge in the intelligence sector, which happened, I think, twice. Uh, during his overseas career and, you know, winding up being taken back to Moscow to be shot just the way that a ton of the Soviet spies in Germany and in Spain were. So he's in China in the 30s and uh, back in the back of your mind is a uh, China in the 30s Trail of Cthulhu book. 
Mm -hmm. uh, were he to show up in that, what sort of interactions would uh, your uh, gang of investigators uh, likely to have with him? I, I think that the gang of investigators, the, the good thing to use Sorge for is, I think, is a conduit to the Russians. So if you've got evidence, say, of an Azathoth cult in the Soviet bureaucracy somewhere, the Red Army, that you've uncovered as they're moving around through uh, China, uh, meeting with, with, with people and setting themselves up, you might say, I'm going to inform on these guys, and I can use Sorge as a back channel to get it back to the GRU. And so then you, you've at least got a chance that the, that the head of the cult, who is otherwise invulnerable back in Russia, can get purged. And you've done your 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 due diligence there. You can also, of course, just have him as a as sort of a a fun historical encounter, not someone who necessarily drives a story, but someone who lets the characters know, oh, this is the actual 1930s, and we're touching history as opposed to a bunch of NPCs that they've never heard of. Right, better than having history touch you. That's that's much, worse, much much better, especially in China in the 30s. Yes, and I think I I, I should point out that Sorge is also. I think he may be my, my belt, the belloc to my indie, because in order to uh, penetrate Nazi ranks, he stopped drinking. <laughs> and so if you're, if, if you're a, um, uh, an infiltrator who's trying to change history by stopping drinking, I think that Richard Sorge and I are, are destined to, to dangle each other off Gotham City skyscrapers for a bit. So maybe it's possible that in, he wasn't hung at all and Time, Inco uh, Time Incorporated's so far unnamed nemesis organization uh, picked him up to pit him uh, against you as, uh, as your nemesis? Very possibly. That that's why the Soviets didn't make a deal. It's because he'd already vanished and the Japanese probably just hung some other guy and pretended it was Sorge. It would have been embarrassing otherwise. Exactly. You've got to gotta hang somebody. find some right. guy who smells like a blueprint lab to uh, to string up. Well, fortunately, that's relatively easy. You just roll a guy around with that um, uh, purple uh, chemical and then you hang him. So are there any other uh, connections between uh, Sorge and uh, genre weirdness that you want to get to before we scarper to our next hut? I don't know if there's necessarily a direct connection between Sorge and genre weirdness. Um, his, Like I mentioned, his, his father was an oil man, and there's lots of sort of weird stuff going on in the oil industry in uh, the teens and 20s. That, of course, is where uh, not just Sidney Riley, but also other sorts of early spies are, are moving. There's a guy named Valentine who was a who was a multi-identity spy of that era, who also used the oil industry as a cover. I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff to be done in the pre-World War One oil fields, and I'll bet uh, Victor Sorge could easily have taken some of that uh, formless spawn of Sathagua or petrochemical aliens or hollow earth radiation or whatever the thing is that the oil companies are drawing out vampirically and taken that with him and used that as as the way that he survives all of those purges and China in the 30s. Uh, speaking of covert things, I should point out that this was a covert Ask Ken and Robin segment as well, because FM Guru asked us to talk about uh, Ricard Sorge, which we have now done. Hurrah! often have you said to yourself, if only there were an equivalent to Robin Laws's brilliant, award-winning, improvisational Armitage Files campaign, only for Knight's Black Agents, Ken Height's vampire spy thriller RPG. More often than you might believe, Robin. So often, in fact, that I went and made one, called the Dracula Dossier, and it's kickstarting now. You interest me strangely. That's just how I interest, I suppose. Does this dossier have any connection to Bram Stoker's immortal novel? It's not a novel, Robin. It was the after-action report of Operation Edom, 
the first 1894 attempt by British intelligence to recruit a vampire. We've unredacted Stoker's first draft of that report, and now the truth can be told. Told in the form of a collaborative, improvisational spy thriller gaming through the hyper-surveilled streets of London and the desolate Carpathian Mountains, I devoutly hope. Your hopes are answered. You play burned spies who follow the clues in the Dracula dossier to hunt and kill Dracula for good 120 years later. Clues, you say? Clues, I do say. Not just the sources and methods Stoker's first draft revealed, but annotations to the dossier made by three generations of MI6 analysts tracking Edom's operations since then. A doomed commando operation in World War II Romania, a mysterious mole hunt in 1970s London, and the dubious 2005 decision to unleash Dracula on Al-Qaeda as the ultimate deniable asset. And since everyone knows the story of Dracula, players can jump into the action anywhere they want, investigate any lead, and find danger and mystery waiting for them. Danger? Mystery? Dozens of NPCs with many possible agendas? Possibly vampirized organizations from the Romanian secret police on down? Locations from Carfax to a CIA black site in Bucharest, and maybe even a magic item or two, if that's the kind of thing you want to look for in your game, of course. So to sum up, the Dracula dossier is a fully improvisational Knight's Black Agents campaign built around the secret history of both Stoker's novel and of European espionage, full of dangerous encounters and subtle conspiracies, and it's kickstarting now. And just like Edom did in 1894, I've brought in an Irish writer to do all the hard bit. Hellgrain <laughs> superstar Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is busily writing up a stretch goal or three even as we speak. You, Gareth, Bragg, Stoker, Van Helsing, Count Dracula, could this game get any more bloated with blood and or awesomeness? You'll have to follow the clues to the Kickstarter page to find out, Robin. Clues like Pelgrain, Dracula, Dossier. But bring an appetite for adventure, because we're cooking with garlic. The clatter of dice, the crunch of Doritos, the crinkle of leftover candy from Halloween tell us that we have entered the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, the GM has lots of uh, little uh, index cards sprinkled around, perhaps pictures that they have downloaded from the internet to give us inspirational glances at supporting characters. And we're going to talk specifically about supporting characters as foils Robin, and I assume you don't mean picking up elves and using them as light, bendable fencing weapons. You're talking about a dramatic foil, so tell us more. Yes, indeed. So this is a literary term, a foil, for those of you who were looking out the window during your uh, English lit class, is a character who, a supporting character who exists in order to bring out qualities in the protagonist. For example, both Laertes and Horatio in Hamlet are foils to Hamlet, and they both represent his two sides for his true dramatic poles, because Hamlet is a character who is torn between action and contemplation. And so Horatio reflects his contemplative side. He's an even cooler customer than Hamlet is, and uh, uh, perhaps not coincidentally, is the one who survives at the end to give you the summary of what is uh, the meaning of what has just happened. And Laertes is all action and all thought and uh, all impulse. And so when Hamlet interacts with both of these characters, that brings out his two sides. And this is a quite common technique that you find particularly in drama. And I remember when I was in university taking a screenwriting course, the advice was have one protagonist uh, or maybe a, a set of co-protagonists and all the other characters, you don't want to 
make them their own just independent characters floating around, they all have to in some way be foils who exist in order to advance the story of the main character. In gaming, we don't have that clear structure, and we usually have an ensemble cast of many protagonists, but we don't often think enough about ways in order to create the NPCs or the GMCs, as I prefer to call them, in a way that heightens the qualities of the player characters, the ones that either bring out one or another side of them or sort of push them in one emotional direction or another. So my uh, number one piece of advice, and I recently wrote uh, one of my little Pelgrane blog posts about this, is just to think about when you create characters, not just their practical role in the story, this guy is the gatekeeper that they have to get past in order to get into the city, but what is it about the gatekeeper that's going to say something about one of the main characters, perhaps the one who is central to the action at that moment. So, uh, Ken, have you experimented with this technique at all in your own games? I don't usually set someone out as a foil. I am a bigger, I, I'm a bigger fan, not necessarily, but I'm more comfortable with, uh, like we were talking about, sort of the dark rival, the, the, the Belloc. I find it uh, fun to pit characters against their mirrors. So if I've got a character who's a really badass fighter, I want to put him up against uh, another badass fighter. I want to have him face down, you know, John Wesley Harden or Sir Galahad or somebody. And conversely, if I've got a character who likes conspiracies and sneaking around and keeping secrets, I want to have a an NPC, a foe, a foe, not necessarily a foil, who is also that. And that, I think, allows me to set up some nice mirrored storylines or doing the good old um, uh, Gardner Fox uh, crossover, I'll fight your villain, you fight my villain type stuff. But the the use of foils, per se, generally my cast of sort of main onstage player character types is large enough that I, I don't want to add more NPCs, and I think that adding uh, NPCs, you run the risk of making them dominate the story as opposed to uh, reinforce the story in, in a lot of cases. Right. And and the trick to to make sure that doesn't happen, if you're using supporting characters as foils, is to always remember that they are there just to bring out something about the main character, that they are, uh, and certainly the antagonist, as you suggest, is very much often a reflection or a demonic parody, as Northrop Fry would have it, of the, the main character who re- represents sort of the opposite of his values. And that, in that way, is also a foil. And so if you're thinking about, even when you're creating uh, bad guys who are characters that you're going to be interacting with in almost any role-playing context, you can also think about ways to make them uh, not just an independent entity that you've thought of uh, on its own, but how is this going to interact with uh, this character, or, or how is it going to bring out uh, this uh, element here or be the reverse of this other guy? Um, so, for example, uh, and let's kind of maybe go through um, how you might actually do this with an emphasis on making sure that they don't run away with the story. So, well, why don't you create your your uh, player character in, let's say, uh, let's say Ashen Stars. You've got a... Uh, tell me about your Ashen Stars character. Okay, uh, my Ashen Stars character is a swaggering, hand-solo, wannabe-type guy, a, a maverick cop who lives on the edge. He doesn't like to play by the laser rules, that's why he's out on the bleed. Um, possibly slightly over-convinced of his own uh, immortality and um, attractiveness, but still 
you know, sort of, sort of that kind of guy, you know, the, you know, the, the, the Murtaugh without the, you know, crippling psychological damage, just sort of, you know, out there getting it done and, um, uh, doesn't want to play by your rules, man. I like that guy. Right. Um, so now in a group of player characters, you may naturally have a setup where another, the player, the characters become each other's foils. So if you have that kind of uh, flamboyant wannabe hand solo guy, there may be another player in the group who just logically adopts the uh, voice of reason. Let's take it careful. Let's uh, uh, not mess around. We don't need no hot shots around here, in which case your job is done. Uh, but let's say that you want to have other characters sort of bring that out who you uh, meet briefly and maybe they feature in one scenario and not in another. So you've already created a character who has an internal opposition because you've suggested that he's a wannabe Han Solo type and that he's over-convinced of who he is. So that suggests that, uh, like a dramatic character, that he is uh, torn between being the hotshot and actually having feet of clay. So what you do to create foil characters for him is you create one character who he meets who is the exaggerated version of the super hotshot guy who kind of comes along and starts trying to show him up. And so then that creates an interesting emotional conflict. You want to make sure you don't chump the character by having your supporting character actually show him up and humiliate him, but rather you want to place an obstacle in front of the that character so that he can, uh, if he's successful enough, triumph and prove that he's the real hotshot. Uh, conversely, you can have, you know, let's say his younger brother shows up and his younger brother is the one who's come along to try and get him back into the family accountancy firm. Uh, and uh, so he represents that uh, that voice of reason character. So, again, we've come to that uh, sort of action versus contemplation duo of poles that we see uh, in Hamlet. Um, so, for example, let's say in an F20 game, I'm playing a righteous paladin who takes uh, faith and commitment to abstract ideas uh, to him is much more important than his personal relationships. So that like a lot of paladins, he comes off as uh, arrogant and he's willing to kind of trample on people's feelings in order to do what he thinks is right. Who would you create to be uh, his two opposing foils? I think that you would have you would have a, a cleric of uh, the same god, or maybe that god's. Uh, you know, if that if if he's the cleric of of Odin, you might make a cleric of Frigga, who's uh, or either paladin of Odin, you might make a cleric of Frigga, someone who's connected to him in a familial or romantic bond, uh, godwise. And the cleric is the other way. It's like no, no, we should go in and, and bring joy and peace of of goodness, and people will be more lawful good if they are brought to it by lots of cure moderate wounds and purify crops instead of a bunch of uh, sword play and being a jerk. And, and so you'd have sort of a, a, a good uh, cleric who embodies the, the, the sort of um, religious impulse without the violent impulse. And then, of course, their other uh, version might be a uh, more sociopathic uh, rogue or assassin type guy who's in the party or is you know, they keep showing up and, and meeting, who recognizes the paladin against the paladin's uh, will as a, as a friend, right? And he's like, hey, how's it going, Sir Binaban? That's awesome. Going out and killing people for Odin. Good job. Well, I'll tell you what, I met a, um, uh, a big convoy of Loki worshippers, and their security is terrible. So um, I'm just going to come along, and you can kill the Loki worshippers, and I'll just help myself do the rich stuffs 
uh, from their from their caravan, and everyone's a winner. And so the paladin doesn't, you know, necessarily want to smite the guy because he is putting Loki worshippers in his path, but he he doesn't like that he has this guy as a self declared friend. Right, because he's presenting him with a, a difficult conflict is, uh, do I help this guy do the right thing for the wrong reasons? And that's what foil characters often do, is they just sort of appear in order to be the uh, the voice, the the delivery system for some sort of uh, interesting conflict. And the characters in, uh, supporting characters in role-playing games are often pretty transitory. They don't uh, recur through the course of a series quite often. They may, you know, occur once and you never meet them again. Well, that doesn't mean they can't be foils. You can create a very specific foil character just to heighten a particular conflict or situation that a character is going through. So if you're hotshot Ashen Stars character does suffer a crisis of self-confidence and is uh, uh, driven to space drink and the, char- the player is playing him as, uh, you know, in a funk and not sure he can do anything successfully. You can have the uh, fellow guy in the bar come up and say, I remember when I was uh, uh, in a crisis of confidence like this and here's how I got out of it. And then, by the way, would you uh, be willing to go on this uh, mission for me, my uh, current cyborg leg uh, is not the original cyborg leg that's, that's been stolen from me. Uh, now that I've given you this great advice, here's a way to get back your mojo and get back my great cybernetic leg so that that presents the uh, player with a reflection of the conflict that the character is going through and then a choice of taking one action or the other so that if he says, well, I don't even think I can get back some old guy's leg now that he's making the choice to go deeper into that side or the player can then choose the, uh, hopefully in this case, more active choice of, okay, I'll go get your leg. And then, uh, that can give him a justification to move back to the other side of that character. I think you can present not just characters as foils, but you can present situations as foils in that same way that, um, I, your mention about the, the, you're going to get a guy's leg back reminded me through, you know, whatever back channels my brain takes of the Magnificent Seven, where all these guys are great gunfighters and Tombstone is, is dead and Dodge City is dead and Abilene is dead and Deadwood is dead. All the places that they gun thought are nothing. And they are on the cusp of meaninglessness because they've, um, uh, they've necessarily barbarian themselves out of a job. But there is one place where they can go and, be gunfighters as a foil to civilization, right? And in uh, in Magnificent Seven, the Seven have as a foil the village, which is pacific and civilized, and Calvera's men, who are utter barbarians. And so, by presenting those two choices, it light it really illuminates the nature of the Seven. And I think you could do that with with the with the sorts of adventures you you take the, the party on, assuming that the party has gelled enough to have a, a coherent identity, right? Right. I just happened to watch Magnificent Seven because uh, I'm writing a book called Blowing Up the Movies uh, that uh, looks at various classic action films and how you can borrow their uh, traits and import them into your role-playing game, particularly Feng Shui. Um, and so uh, one of the backers who uh, sponsored a pick-your-own chapter in the book uh, picked Seven Samurai and wanted some uh, Magnificent Seven thrown in there for good measure. And what you've hit on is actually the the through line for Magnificent Seven, that the Magnificent Seven picks a different dramatic opposition. Well, it's, not, it's just sort of a, a thesis, actually, because it's not 
really in opposition to right. it. But the thesis is that the, the gunslingers are dying, the gunslinger era is over, and they sort of take the last line of Seven Samurai and make it into the whole, thematically speaking, of Magnificent Seven. And so that's uh, another thing that foils do is they uh, remind you of the theme or through line of the of the narrative so that uh, your personal theme may be action versus contemplation, in which case the foils come along and remind you of that. But another thing they can come and do is, you know, if you've got a, you know, a space Western all about the, you know, you're the last uh, laser slingers left in this uh, on this planet, you can have a character come along to react in some way to that and to bring out the theme again, if it's been getting lost amid the uh, procedural action of uh, guarding the robot village or whatever it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And again, of course, in Magnificent Seven, uh, because it's a great movie, there are characters within each of those situations the old man in the village and Calvera himself among the bandits who act as more conventional dramatic foils when they talk to Chris and um, Steve McQueen's character, whose name escapes me. Right. It has to be said that if you're going to love Magnificent Seven, don't watch it right after yeah. Seven Samurai. I, I, yeah, ideally. Because it becomes apparent that um, uh, in Seven Samurai, all of the themes are brought out through action and decisions. And there are, are a bunch of bits in Magnificent Seven, where the characters just sort of talk the theme at each other. And so the point there, not to slate Magnificent Seven, but just to remind you to always try and uh, cap however you introduce the theme, not just with the character showing up to ramble on, but then ending this by presenting the character with a choice that allows them to make an action that says something about the through line and about their personal <laughs> dramatic pulls. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not necessarily sure to where to go from a, a public health uh, warning to not watch the derivative too soon after the original. But I guess that's that's a question we can ask about uh, foils. Is given that foils are going to wind up being thinner characters than the characters they're foiling because they are embodying one or the other side. Is there a way in, especially in a game like maybe um, a drama system or a game where the interior life of the character is more important necessarily than the procedural stabbing that they may or may not be engaging in, is there a way to make sure that your foils don't feel like foils, like characters who are just brought on, like uh, the, the the doctor in, um, uh, in in Next Generation to say, oh, I don't know, that seems awfully undoctory. They have to have a reason for doing what they're doing in the scene. And in uh, Drama System, that's pretty easy, because as the GM, if you're calling a scene, you know what the character wants emotionally from the character they're going to. So that there's more to it than just showing up to talk the theme at each other, but they actually want something. And so that ties again into if they're presenting them with a choice, there's a reason from that character's point of view why he's making that choice. And there's a sort of a practical level to it so that the, you know, the guy who wants his better cyber leg back, well, he wants his better cyber leg back. He's got his own thing going on. He's got other dimensions to him. It's just he, his role in this story is to take, bring those to bear to presenting a more important character with that choice. So as long as they always have a reason to be doing what they're doing, and it's not just because they like to natter or this is a thing they like to talk about. In, in other words, if they have an agenda, I think that uh, does a pretty good job of uh, obscuring any of the, uh, the the strings that they might otherwise have on them as puppets. Okay, I think that having been given uh, good advice on every level of uh, foilage, we can wrap the rest of this conversation in foil and store it for another gaming hut sometime later.
Have you ever wanted to build your own post-apocalyptic wasteland? Only if we can then heroically fashion a new civilization from the ashes of the old. Well, then we're in luck, because this episode is brought to you in part by Legacy Life Among the Ruins from UFO Press. Legacy combines the post-apocalyptic weirdness of Fallout on Roadside Picnic with the epic-spanning strategy of Alpha Centauri, or Civilization. Use its step-by-step guide to design the post-catastrophic setting of your choice. Or your nightmares. Populate it with a clan of survivors from one of five archetypes. Merchants, tyrants, lawgivers, zealots, and law keepers. From every generation strides a new family hero. Maybe a hunter, an elder, a scavenger, a survivor. Whoever you choose must solve this generation's crisis using the relics of previous heroes. Legacy uses a heavily modified Apocalypse World engine to provide both quick action and tough choices. On Kickstarter now, until December 5th. Like all the smart Kickstarter kids do, it shoots you the current draft text as soon as you pledge. So you can get to reconstructing that devastated world right away. Remember, scroungers, that's Legacy Life Among the Ruins, now at a Kickstarter near you. Or just left of that burning tire fire several stops down from the cannibal-infested grain silo. This week, the consulting occultist, as he is going to be for the next several weeks, is not in his usual den at the top of Creaky Stairs where a portrait of Madame Blavatsky stares down at him, but he is in a... Parisian cafe where strange paintings of another realm uh, dance and flicker in the periphery of our vision because the consulting occultist is uh, joining our series of Dream Hounds of Paris segments to uh, present a few segments on some of the most interesting occult figures of Paris in the 20s and 30s. And we're going to start off with Charles Rocher, who is a really uh, cool combination of uh, science and spiritualism, and he's someone who André Breton, the uh, so-called Pope of the Surrealists, who we will uh, mention later on in this podcast, I'm sure, uh, thought of at a moment when he wanted to make Surrealism more overtly magical, and he listed a bunch of people, including Nicholas Flamel, the medieval alchemist, and he mentioned the uh, then-current figure, Charles Rocher. So, Ken, who was Charles Rocher, and how many pies did he have his French fingers in? Charles Rocher, he has two main pies, of course, which are his medical Nobel Prize-winning pie and the spiritualist pie, but uh, each of those pies had a number of different components. Sub-pies, as it were. Sub-pies. He also consulted on the building of the Broguet-Richet gyroplane, which is a gigantic open-work helicopter that, of course, uh, worked about as well as uh, ectoplasm uh, does. And he was a fan of Esperanto, and he was a big eugenicist. So if you remember back to our days talking about Cancelier and Lindbergh and their uh, robot secret society, it's possible that the robots that they built, the eugenic robots that they built, have Charles Richet's ectoplasm and uh, anaphylactic reactions in them. He was a uh, Nobel Prize winning physiologist. He discovered anaphylaxis, or at least he sort of figured out what it was when people would just suddenly die from getting an injection. And yes, people with anaphylaxis discover it. <laughs> discover it <laughs> he understood over it. and over. Um, but he, in this particular case, um, uh, identified it and perhaps cut down on the number of people who died of it 
uh, later on, a physiologist and a neurophysiologist. He was interested in the chemistry of the brain, as well as, you know, all the other sort of autonomic things that we do without thinking. That was sort of his specialty uh, as a physiologist. And that led him, via hypnosis, into the occult. And he was interested in spiritualists, because they did things that ordinarily you could not do with the normal uh, complement of brains and senses. And he was buddies with another medical doctor named Gerard Ancos, who is perhaps better known here in the Consulting Occultists Cafe as Papus, the central spirit of the great um, fin de siècle rising of the of the French occult. He was um, uh, he founded a bunch of different magical orders. He sponsored new versions of the tarot. He was just a, a big busy guy. He was also probably a spy, as it turned out. Right, uh, and I think we're spies. giving him his own segment later. As well, we should. But anyway, Papus and uh, Richet were buddies, and so I suspect that whenever Richet would come and tell Papus something crazy that happens in the brain or in the or in the uh, glands or whatever, Papus would say, "Ah, this is because of uh, this uh, occult force that we do not barely understand, and you, as a scientist, are the guy who should be studying it." And Richet studied it so hard that he invented the word ectoplasm for which we all owe him a, uh, a great a vote of thanks, regardless of whatever else he did. And he then hung out with a series of obvious cranks. Uh, my favorite, perhaps, is Joaquin Maria Argamasilla, who is also known as the Spaniard with X-ray eyes. <laughs> Not to be mistaken for the Dominican with X-ray eyes. Different guy. And his secret power was to peek through the blindfold. <laughs> <laughs> and you just have the notion of this of this uh, Nobel Prize winning doctor, by the way, in theory a trained observer who is simply being rooked like a two year old at a poker game, right? And it's just delightful. Well, and, and that's a repeating syndrome: is that yeah. scientists are not used to their laboratory experiments trying to trick them, mm. and so since they're used to setting the boundaries for their own experiments, there's quite often sort of a blind spot where uh, they don't uh, admit the possibility of someone else trying to uh, pull the, the wool over their eyes, or in this case, tighten their own uh, spiritual blindfold. Yes. He's, he's also, by the way, fooled by a cardboard cutout at one time, and by the, um, uh, the, the Italian uh, medium Eusapia Balladino, and her social presence was such that the argument over whether or not she was a crank, or, or rather a crook, and whether or not people should have known she was a crook, pretty much destroyed the uh, Society for Psychical Research in Britain, and uh, Richet was a hardcore pro-Paladinist pretty much down to the end, um, and indeed began to conspire at fraudulent mediums just to make sure that he didn't get embarrassed more often. So, uh, listeners are not going to forgive me if I don't go back and ask for more on the cardboard cutout. <laughs> okay. Um, there was another one of these guys, in this case I guess it was a, a lady, Eva Carrier, who had uh, seances and she would invite people to sit at the seances, and she would materialize an uh, Indian uh, Hindu uh, spirit named Bien Bois, and they would see Bien Bois in the, in the room, and all the, oh my goodness, Bien Bois has appeared out of the ectoplasm. And they took pictures of Bien Bois, and if you look at the negatives, it's quite obviously a cardboard cutout of a guy standing behind <laughs> Eva Carrier, and so it was apparently smoke, literally smoke and mirrors that made... Uh, him look like a dude, although they also say that she had a servant who dressed up as Bien Bois and would sneak around the um, uh, the sittings and touch people at, at uh, strategic moments uh, during the um, uh, during during the sittings. So I I I, I just enjoy that. Uh, uh, the, it, it seems like 
it, it if if there's if there's one thing that uh, makes you mistakenly believe that the past is another country, it is the notion that someone is being taken in by an Arab coachman in a hat and a cardboard cutout. Although, of course, well, I'm that sure... that way before the ubiquity of uh, movie theater standees. So we, right, we weren't yeah. as used to identifying cardboard cutouts as, as uh, back then as we are now. And I'm sure someone is out there right now being um, uh, conned by something similarly stupid. I guess the, this is a, a lesson to the GM not to lean too hard on the players if they're attempting to fool a French neuropsychologist <laughs> with um, uh, with otherwise transparent mummery. <laughs> yes, that, I think that is a mistake, actually. This is a bit of a tangent, but hey, this is the Ken and Robin podcast, um, in which we are uh, too demanding of uh, the players in making a super plausible con or uh, argument, whereas if you look at the source material or, in fact, history, people can be very gullible indeed, and that the um, master cons uh, that the con artists of both uh, fiction and uh, reality pull off are because they are picking gullible people to try them on. And so that might be sort of more of the focus is not uh, coming up with the great explanation of what you're doing, but, you know, which of these two guards do you decide to talk to? Right. Figuring out which Nobel Prize winner is actually apparently um, uh, a simple and beautiful trusting soul. So in our real world, uh, Charles Richer is a gull. Uh, but what happens if we have him, for example, in Trail of Cthulhu, where real occult forces exist? Is there uh, something about that cardboard figure that uh, looks fake in uh, the photograph, but in fact is an emanation from a two-dimensional plane? Well, I think that in a, in a, uh, especially in a Dreamhounds campaign, where you have this sort of overlap between art and uh, mythos magic, the notion that there's a cardboard cutout of a figure doesn't make it not magical. The cardboard cutout could be an important part of the thing. It could be the anchor for the spirit, Bien Bois. It could be the fact that making the cardboard cutout called Bien Bois into existence, Tulpa style. Um, uh, it could be any number of things. It could simply be that when you take a picture of Bien Bois, because he is a mythos entity, he looks like a cardboard cutout. And um, that maybe Eva Carrier hires the Arab coachman to dress up as Bienbois because she became terrified that the real Bienbois was sort of taking over her life uh, with his ectoplasm. And so I think you can do a lot of things with something that is obviously a fraud unless you know mythos lore, in which case maybe it's not a fraud again. And that puts the characters on the delightful side of looking for mythos significance in something that literally everyone else in the world already knows is a crock. So is there, are there other uh, Charles Richet uh, plot hooks that you can come up with for uh, people playing Dreamhounds? Well, I mean, he is the uh, president, uh, which is sort of an honorary uh, position, of the Institut uh, Métaphysique International in Paris, which I mentioned in the Perry Occult section in Dreamhounds, uh, although uh, I give more play to the actual directors, the guys who do the hard work. Um, apparently, Richet just shows up and uh, slows down their investigations by believing things. In the nature of uh, eminences everywhere. But he also, I think, can give you good contacts, both in the uh, psychic world and also the scientific world, but in, also in the world of uh, magic, because he is buddies with Papu, and you can have um, lots of, uh, you know, he can, he can be sort of your connector, and you have to go back to Richet and find out what the next thing is. Um, he's a patron of the arts, so he has uh, some connections there as well. He's, he's old enough that he can be your link back to that 1890s uh, generation of magicians, to the King in Yellow era, 
Um, he has a lot of possibility. There's a lot of story meat in him just because he's um, old and famous and nothing's going to detach him from his position of respect in French society, no matter how many cardboard cutouts he believes in. Uh, well, I think that uh, covers Charles Rocher pretty well. Uh, we're going to look at other French occultists in the weeks to come as an adjunct to our examination of Dreamhounds of Paris. And, hmm, do I detect a note of foreshadowing? Dun, dun, dun. The sound of Herman Goering reaching for his pistol. <laughs> if only he'd soundproof that pistol, man. If only he'd soundproof. Well, he, he was not really a guy who was going for the, the silent kill. He was an intimidation yes. guy. That's one of those CGI pistols that goes... The, um, uh, the, the sight of old masters lowering disdainfully down from the walls. The smell of uh, brand new... Uh, concrete and uh, hectographing liquid tell us we've entered the bizarre confines of the culture hut. And here in the culture hut, we are going to begin our many episodes journey into la surrealisme, the surrealists and their works, their world, their there are other things beginning with W. Both their works and their world. Yeah. Um, so, Robin, why don't you give us the titular 101 on Surrealism 101? So, Surrealism is one of the many artistic movements that arise out of the aftermath of uh, World War One. And uh, if you're used to the, sort of the uh, American literature, you think of that as the lost generation. Well, even more disillusioned by the events of World War I than Americans who went to hang out in Paris were the Parisians themselves. And so uh, there's this great sort of shakeup of all of the eternal verities and values and um, everything about the uh, system of culture and authority that had previously pertained was now in a smoking ruin because it was civilization that had brought about this stupid, wasteless, a wasteful, murderous war and left people searching for some sort of alternate value system that would allow them to comment on that, or in the case of the Surrealists, to start to destroy the vestiges of that system in order to put in place what they hoped would be a much better world. And in the case of the Surrealists, they wanted a world not only where uh, people consumed uh, better art, more interesting poems, more challenging uh, visual art. Uh, they actually literally wanted to change the way people think by creating what uh, the self-appointed leader of the movement, Andrew Breton, called a psychic revolution. And so they really thought that they could change the world through their art. Now, this didn't happen overnight or without precedence. Uh, they had a lot of sort of precursor figures who interested them, and uh, not coincidentally, because the Surrealists interest us, they tend to have a certain amount of overlap with uh, people we find interesting. So, for example, anyone with sort of a, both a modernist, yet also sort of a, a dark or gothic 
sensibility interests the early surrealists. So, for example, Poe was someone who they looked to as uh, being an interesting sort of rebel writer who was uh, describing a sensibility that was that was new and subversive from a pre- previous generation. Or uh, the Comte de Lancremont, who uh, was a guy actually, an Uruguayan named Isidore Ducasse, who wrote this book called Maldoror, which is uh, sort of uh, a 19th century William S. Burroughs, and he died really young during the bombardment of, uh, of Paris. But his uh, that book is still really fascinating and uh, also full of dark Gothic and, dare we say, you know, Lovecraftian tone. Or they're also interested in uh, Stéphane Mallarmé or Arthur Rimbaud, and particularly uh, Guillaume Apollinaire, who was the sort of lead cultural poobah in France uh, before World War I and, and lasted a little while afterwards and was uh, wounded during the war. And uh, he wrote things that sort of departed from uh, ordinary reality. And uh, the word uh, surrealism is the word that he actually coined to describe one of his sort of strange, absurdist plays. And another precursor movement that's really important are the Dada uh, movement, and that's the first one that I think our readers or listeners might be vaguely familiar with, and that's something that came out of Zurich, and that was just sort of an absolute negation of all meaning, and that was sort of the first uh, crazy performance art where they would get on stage and uh, dress in these incredibly confining cardboard tubes and play weird percussion uh, sounds that never quite resolved into music and kind of uh, assaulted the audience. They were also the first people to just sort of deconstructed type where all of the letters are kind of falling apart on the page and their uh, publications and, and posters. And so uh, that's uh, kind of the beginnings of that. And uh, it is uh, a poet named Andre Breton, who I think we'll have to give his own segment next week. But he's the one who sort of tried to coalesce a movement of younger figures, initially at first uh, poets, around this whole idea of creating a subversive art that would change the world by investigating uh, dreams, because they were as big on uh, Freud as they were on all of these sort of uh, decadent or darkly gothic uh, early literary figures. And initially, surrealism is a poetic movement, but over the years, increasingly, more and more painters get involved. Uh, Breton himself was an art dealer and was involved with uh, art in various ways, and he's the one who uh, starts attracting artists around him. And then eventually the artists wind up eclipsing the poets, at least outside of France. Um, And so we think of Salvador Dali or uh, René Magritte or Max Ernst or the filmmaker Louis Bunuel or the photographer Man Ray way more than we necessarily think of Breton himself or uh, other poets like Paul Eluard or uh, Louis Aragon, uh, who uh, winds up turning against him uh, later on. So the Surrealists, I, th- I think the the problem slash joy of the Surrealists is that it can look like they are either just wasting everyone's valuable time by being silly, you know, that this is not a pipe, haha, all right, we get it, or they are just tossing things up there at random. So you've got an elephant playing a piano with the fish falling out and the sun is coming out of the side of the painting and isn't that weird, but is there a way to look at the Surrealists, especially in the sort of post-Monty Python, post-takeover of the 60s by Surrealist thought, that we can we, we can sort of get back to the Surrealists and, and sort of look at their art on some level other than this is, you know, well laid out or this is just silly. Is there is there a, a, a through line or a thread that we can look at? Because you can look at um, uh, 
at, at surrealist paintings all day and never see a drop of Marx. Obviously, you can see a little more Freud, but what's what's the what's the core that we can take out of a surrealist painting when we look at it that gets us closer to Dreamhounds of Paris and farther from uh, Terry Gilliam? Well, first of all, you have to scrape away all of those preconceptions that you're talking about, because in fact, the things that we think about as surrealism today, about silliness, um, are from Python and uh, other people, uh, some of them on colorful substances in the 60s, <laughs> recreating their ver attempt at a psychic revolution, and that the tone of the actual surrealist movement is dark and violent and uh, a creepily sexual and uses all of this horror imagery, and it's not meant to be funny. And even uh, the Magritte paintings, they have a sort of a sense of wit about them, but there's, they're cognitively challenging, right? Having a painting and putting it up, up on the wall, uh, a picture of a, a pipe and then underneath is the uh, carefully lettered words, this is not a pipe, uh, is now seems like sort of a, a cliche to us. But at the time, it was a huge challenge to the art establishment and the whole idea of what art was supposed to do. The idea even that art is supposed to convey ideas about the world rather than simply uh, depict things or to be uh, a filter perception is very much comes originally from the uh, Dadas and early surrealists like Marcel Duchamp. And we kind of take that for granted today. And although there is a joking quality in some of the surrealist work, it is a biting sort of violent wit that has to do with the cultural battles going on in France at that time, where there are literally, um, you know, battles in the street between the left and the right. And there was you know, very little room for the middle. And in fact, the uh, members of the Surrealist movement themselves would physically attack uh, people who they perceived as their uh, artistic or political rivals with uh, with knives, or they break a guy's arm with their cane. So it's, a, uh, it's really more about uh, violence and an assault on authority than it is about just being uh, goofy. And the assault on authority in Python is the, you know, the young guys against the fuddy-duddies, but it has that sort of irony to it that was not part of the original surrealist uh, movement. And Breton himself uh, notoriously lacked a sense of humor. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Although he did say that Dali could double him over with laughter. And there are jokes in Dali, but they're uh, weird, upsetting jokes, and, and often upsetting also to the other surrealists. So there's, you know, one of his paintings has a piano and all these fiery heads of Lenin on it. And he's, you know, uh, kicking at uh, the other's fervent communism uh, with that. But that's not a, you know, a bunch of burning linen heads is not uh, a joke the way the parrot sketch or a Looney Tunes cartoon is a joke. It is getting at something very serious and something that could get you a knife between the ribs. Mm -hmm. I do want to just put a pin in when you mentioned that uh, the notion of art as uh, having, having to say something. Obviously, religious art says something and has said something since before there was Christianity, much less before there was Surrealists. But, but it's not making it an abstract intellectual declaration. It's uh, reinforcing a, a current paradigm and belief system. And I, I guess the, the difference in uh, here, and that art was supposed to make a point, it was making an abstract point, and it was making it uh, against the prevailing aesthetic and political authorities. Right. 
So we, we, we need to be looking at surrealism as sort of, uh, a terrorism, really, that it's because, I mean, when you read their uh, manifestos, it's all like, we're going to break society into a yes. million pieces. We're going to destroy it. We're going to set off bombs. And these are guys who basically, A, the people have been setting off bombs, you know, in and around them for a while because of World War One, but also they come out of that that first wave of urban terrorism in the West, in, in France, where the dynamiters were blowing up nightclubs. Right, and, and, and they like use that. that term. They describe themselves as artistic terrorists. Uh, the poet Louis Aragon at one point got in uh, got himself arrested for sedition, but for republishing his poem about uh, sh shooting a cop, right? Mm -hmm. His, his uh, statement was that, you know, real surrealism would be shooting a pistol into a crowd. Yeah. And so uh, these are not necessarily nice guys and they're not cosseted in the preciousness of art or the idea of their uh, art being uh, pretentious. These guys saw themselves as tearing a system apart. And in their defense, uh, a lot of them were, were, uh, were not rich. They were they were poor. They were lower middle class origins, and or lower middle class at least origins. But they they didn't make any money. They they come before the commodification of rebellion uh, in the in the sixties. Yes, and, absolutely. So uh, Man Ray, the photographer, had money, but that was money from uh, taking portraits of people. Where he really saw himself as a painter, and that is his. Uh, day job. And uh, everybody else at this point was pretty skint. Uh, Dali, in the 30s, uh, once he gets discovered by America, his uh, uh, partner Gala, later his wife, uh, seizes on that, and he makes the plan to be the first sort of superstar of art and eclipse everybody else in the Surrealist movement. And, you know, he winds up with money later. Uh, but most of these other people, even as they were, uh, they're dying, only then did the market for their work uh, pick up. There was they there um, they had shows in Paris at this time, and there were people who collected them. They did have patrons, but they were uh, mostly impoverished. It was not a bunch of people using art speak to launch a super lucrative modern art career the way that it is possible to do now. Right, and even Cocteau, who comes from you know a, a upper middle class family, he you know his dad dies when he's nine, and he's basically bankrupt, and so he has upper class ambitions, but doesn't have. Uh, any any resources, even social resources, once he starts being cocteau. Right, and and he is hated by the actual surrealists. He's yeah. Uh, if you go to a surrealist exhibit now, you will see uh, work by Cocteau alongside uh, Dali and Ernst. But that would make uh, Breton spin in his grave if he believed in an afterlife, um, <laughs> because uh, you know they they really detested uh, Cocteau a lot because of his right-wing social connections, um, and because he was gay. They uh, really yeah. detested his homosexuality, and uh, Breton in particular, and uh, really, really despised him. And he was relatively openly gay for 1930, right? He wasn't, uh, you know... Scratch, very... scratch relatively. He was, yeah. <laughs> he was the first totally out gay icon, um, and all of the biographies, including the biography of Cocteau all sort of slate him a lot for being a social climber and a flippity gibbet and being a frivolous person. Um, and uh, it would be really great to see in a contemporary uh, biography that doesn't feel the need to nudge and wink around his uh, sexuality, because given right. the context that he was operating in, I think he's actually quite a heroic figure, as well as a flawed figure who was addicted to opium and uh, had all of these... Uh, you know, a, a really messy sort of uh, personal life. and uh, But he just, you know, wanted to be accepted by all the people he found exciting, like Picasso, and he wanted to be a, a, uh, accepted by the Surrealists, but they uh, despised him as a, as a, a poseur. But um, his creative output, 
uh, between novels and plays and Paintings. illustration yeah. work and, and film uh, is as impressive as anyone. So uh, one of the things that I would hope that people would take away from uh, this is to uh, look again at Cocteau. And, and even Gala, who was also uh, despised uh, in all of the biographies. Well, I guess we'll get to For a bit more a on the, uh, in the Dali segment. I, I would even uh, defend her. And she takes a lot of stick in the, in the uh, biographies. So, so maybe hanging Cocteau with the Surrealists is itself a Surrealist act? It's certainly uh, Cocteau's revenge. Yeah. <laughs> That's <Right>. what it is. <laughs> um, do we have any other uh, base uh, data about the Surrealists that we should get to? Is there a... Well, we want to emphasize that they were magicians. Um, yeah. They, uh, in the early... Uh, I thought that one without saying. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in the early 20s and 30s, uh, sorry, in the early 20s, uh, they had a long experiment with seances and uh, automatic writing and channeling spirits. And, uh, and they were fans of the tarot. They were well. fans of the tarot. They were uh, fans of uh, various uh, occult figures. And uh, they got a little scared when uh, one of their number wound up chasing another with a knife uh, while under a trance or in another time locked everybody in a room and left them there. Um, and uh, But again, later on in life, in uh, past the Dream Hunts period, Breton goes back to the occult and he writes a book about art and magic, uh, which he has trouble finishing because one of, he collects uh, fetish objects and has, uh, since he was a young child, collected all these uh, ethnographic treasures, which no one else was interested in at that time. And uh, he has trouble uh, completing the book because one of his voodoo dolls doesn't want it to be written and is staring at him from the shelf. Well, <laughs> we all know that problem. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so there's, uh, you know, th they were uh, uh, interested in the occult and they uh, were doing occult things at various points. And so that uh, very easily hooks into, as we said last week, into uh, adding Cthulhu because you don't have to add virtually anything. <laughs> yeah, that's always the that best happen. is when you're not making things up anymore, you're just doing research. Yeah, so th there's <laughs> just enough made up in Dream Hands of Paris that you shouldn't use it uh, for your research papers uh, because we do mix Lovecraft history in with real history, but there's not that much making it up. Now, if you went over everything in there that is a lie with a, with a magic marker, you would not actually color, color over very much of the text. I mean, some of my stuff is a little bit of a lie. Right. But, if you, if yeah. you see the stuff on Charles Marsh, you, you know what's going on. Yeah, Frank Marsh. Frank Marsh, yeah. yes. Yeah, so let's see. So they're magicians, they're terrorists, they are uh, revolutionaries in uh, a, the scary way, not the fun way, yeah. uh, not the commercial way. And, the, and their battlements are the uh, collective unconscious. And, and many of them are, are communists, which uh, yes. is possibly even worse than all of those things. Is there a thing about the surrealists that you can use... Uh, in gaming, if you are so blind to opportunities to not pick up Dreamhounds, is there a, a thing you can take from the Surrealists in, into a, a, a modern-day sort of a game or into a, a science fiction game? Is there a possibility for Surrealism? Or is it a historically contingent time and you should just play in the 20s and 30s like a grown-up? Well, the whole idea of art being able to change human consciousness also appears in the Esoterrace, of course. It's uh, central to that. And uh, anything that you want to do that's sort of a... Uh, a sort of a seven, uh, 70s style uh, SF head trippy kind of campaign is right. also going to wind up drawing quite heavily on the ideas of the Surrealists because that's where uh, all of that and you know the, anything that has a counterculture influence comes originally from Dada, which quickly turned into Surrealism. So right. uh, you know, and and without it. Uh, we might still have uh, William Burroughs because Arthur Miller is sort of a source for Burroughs, but you know we wouldn't. Uh, Michael Moorcock would not be 
uh, who he was. Uh, you know, uh, Tarkovsky might not be who he was. Anything with a, uh, a trippy or a mindscape exploring quality to it, which is a huge chunk of all genre stuff, uh, owes a debt to the surrealists. All right. So is there a, is, is there a favorite surrealist? Is there someone that people should go Google image search right now to get ready for uh, the continuing of this? Or should they just, uh, in the proper spirit of the surrealist's automatic writing, just type surrealism into Google image search and, and go bananas? What, what, what do you recommend for the, for the new diver into the uh, proto-conscious depths? Um, if, if you want to just do an image search and see some stuff quickly, uh, Salvador Dali, Max Ernst, Rene Magritte, and that'll get you uh, started. Okay. And then those are sort of the, the ones that you will probably recognize from having seen other times. I mean, the Chirico is not necessarily super common. Uh, you know, he, you don't see his, his prints on as many undergraduate dorm room walls as you do Magritte, for example. Yeah. Or if you've seen him, you you just think of him as that guy with the weird empty vistas. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it sounds like uh, the Surrealists have um, uh, packed up their bicycles and moved on. But uh, we will continue to follow them, just like a creepy fetish doll from the shelf, I suspect. Yes, so uh, next week uh, we'll examine the extremely maddening, uh, contradictory figure of André Breton, the, uh, the Pope of Surrealism. Excellent. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. UFO Press. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Ken's Dracula Dossier Kickstarter for Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep us in ectoplasm by hitting the donate button at KenRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Samuel Kreider. Rick Neal. Andrew Miller. And John Corey. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book for Psychic Revolution by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.